Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, friends, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Dan Malthrop. I'm the Chief Executive here at the City Club. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers today, Pastor Jonathan Williams and his father, the Reverend Dr. Paula Stone Williams. Our program today is part of our ongoing collaboration with MOCA Cleveland, your free Museum of Contemporary Art, and the organization Four Freedoms as well. It coincides with tomorrow's Four Freedoms Town Hall, in which we'll explore the role that parent-child relationships play in creating strong and resilient communities that's tomorrow at 1 at MOCA Cleveland. Over the last several months, a national conversation on identity, religion, and faith has emerged. There's the fracturing of the United Methodist Church over a plan to deny gay and lesbian members the ability to get married in the church and become clergy members. There's the rise of a Democratic presidential candidate, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, a man who describes himself as gay and devoutly Christian. And there's an ongoing petition initiative at Baylor University to pressure the university to recognize and charter its LGBT student groups. These are just three things, but they're demonstrative of the ongoing challenges of reconciling religion, faith, gender, and sexuality. Today, we'll bear witness to a personal story at the intersection of all of these things. Paula Stone Williams will tell her own story, but at the outset, you should know she is a pastor at Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado, and she's also transgender. Her son, Jonathan Williams, is also a pastor. He founded Forefront Church in Brooklyn, New York, and faced his own professional and personal reckoning when his father announced her transition from male to female. His book, his first book, as far as we know, right? His That's first true. book. First one. His yeah. first book is titled, She's My Dad, A Father's Transition and a Son's Redemption. Their TED Talk by the same name has received more than a million views. Esteemed guests, members and friends of the City Club, please join me, joining me in welcoming the Williams family. Um, so as I, as I told both of you, we're going to start up here. In the second half of the program, we'll get to questions from the audience. But Paula, can you start with um, not the full TED Talk version of your story? Our stage is a little smaller, so your story's got to be a little smaller. Because <laughs> you don't have a red we don't, And we don't have yeah. a red circle yeah. that you have to stay inside of. But go ahead. So I knew from the time I was three or four years of age that I was transgender. And in my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I actually think that also was white male privilege because white little boys from my part of town, and I grew up in Akron, basically were taught we could do absolutely anything. So changing genders seemed appropriate. <laughs> However, I found out there was no such thing as a gender fairy, so I just lived my life. I did not hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. That's my story. If you've talked to one transgender person, you've talked to just one transgender person, so I can only speak for myself. So I lived my life, went to college, got married, had kids, built a career. But the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm, and eventually decisions have to be made, and so I came out as transgender. Turns out if you spend most of your life working in the conservative evangelical world, 
coming out as transgender is not really great for your career. <laughs> 21 states, you cannot be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can be fired if you're trans and you work for a religious corporation. So I lost every single one of my jobs within seven days. Pretty much was lost. Had it not been for PFLAG of Boulder County, I don't think I would have survived that first year. And after having been treated like that by the evangelical church, somehow I find myself back in ministry. In fact, I said to my former wife, with whom I'm still in business, we're both psychotherapists, I said to her just two days ago, I said, if you said 20 years ago that all three of you, my former wife and my two daughters, would not be a part of the church, and that Jonathan and I would both be pastors, just that alone would have been unbelievable in our family. Right. And yet here we are both pastors. Yeah, much yeah. less the, the other stuff about, yeah. the, about the journey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you go back for a second? I mean, you, you, you run through the, the story in a, in a way that's engaging, but it raises all sorts of questions such as um, you knew from, from very early on that you were transgender, um, and yet the, you chose a, you, you, you made all sorts of choices throughout your life that put that knowledge somewhere else, that really tamped down that knowledge. You chose to, to, to marry, in, and you chose to raise a family. You chose, um, you chose to join the ministry. Um, can you talk about some of that a little bit? First of all, I think if you're raised fundamentalist, any kind of fundamentalism, and there are lots of different forms of it, you're not making your own decisions. They're being made for you. Mm -hmm. And so in my case, going into ministry was the family business. I mean, that's what everybody had been doing for generations. And so that was pretty simple to do. And I was actually naive enough to think that if I got married, that it would go away. And so after getting married, it's like, oh, yeah, that didn't work so well. But now I'm married, and then we had kids, and I loved being a father. I just loved it. And I wanted to make it through because I didn't want my family to have to go through what they had to go through. So I was pretty committed to making it through until finally I realized, yeah, there's a reason 41% of transgender people attempt suicide, uh, that it, maybe I wasn't going to make it. And at that point, you're thinking, well, probably they would rather have you alive than have you in their preferred gender for you, the one that had been created by the family system, the one that you're going to explode. But I think that's finally what caused me to realize, yep, it's, I'm going to have to do this. Had you contemplated suicide? Of course, yeah. Most of us, um, the world doesn't treat us all that well. Only 0.58% of the population are transgender. And in many parts of the world, particularly in the more conservative parts of the world, which isn't so true in northern Ohio, a little bit more true in southern Ohio, um, the world doesn't treat us all that well. And so, yeah, it, um, it, was, it was there. There's even post-transition, a 35% first-year suicidal ideation rate, which is different than attempting suicide. The biggest reason for that is internalization of transphobia. Mm -hmm. That you lose everything, you lose family, friends, and jobs, and then you take in the message of the culture around you that you're not okay. And so that causes a lot of people post-transition. Interestingly, 92 out of every 100 people who transition actually are very happy in their new body. But even if you isolate that eight who are not, only 4% of that eight actually don't like their new body. 
the rest regret transitioning because of the way the world has responded to them. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Jonathan Williams, um, I want to hear a, your story, your take on the on your father's coming out story when when you learned that your father was transgender. Yeah. Um, I had just started a church, Forefront Brooklyn, and uh, it was three months old. If you've ever started a church before, I uh, think everybody has. Everybody I mean, has. really. <laughs> I mean, it's it's everybody knows. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's you know, it's eighty, it's eighty-five, ninety hours a week. You're meeting with uh, everybody and anybody, really anyone with a pulse. You're meeting with them, uh, and uh, it's just nonstop work. And my dad called, and, and my dad said, um, "I need to fly to New York, and I need, I need to talk with you." And I said, just tell me over the phone, you know, whatever it is, just, just let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm busy right now. And, uh, and my dad said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly out. I'm going to come out tomorrow, and I'm going to talk, talk to you. Uh, is that okay? And I said, that's fine. And immediately my, my head, you know, well, what's going on? And, and what is, is my dad leaving my mom? It was, did something happen? I think I settled on insurance fraud. <laughs> really? Yeah, I was like, I, I yeah. think my dad committed insurance fraud and is gonna. Was there some unexplained fire no, or no. something like? I, I just because I, you know, the far reaches of my brain, and so, uh -huh. so. Um, yeah. That's odd. Yeah. You know that's odd. Okay. Oh yeah, uh, you know that's where I went. That's okay. at the place I went. Um, and sh yeah, my my dad came uh, and sat down in, our, in the living room and said, uh, "I'm transitioning. I'm 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 transgender and I'm transitioning to the to the female gender." And at first, I thought, well, thank God it wasn't insurance fraud. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's not what you thought. You wished it had been insurance fraud. I, I think I probably did a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it, it was dizzying. Uh, this is this is for me, you know, straight white male. You know, I, I never have to deal with with anything. Um, you know, blind spots are real, and so I had blind spots all around what it meant to be tran uh, transgender. And you know, this is uh, pre. Uh, pre-transparent, pre, -transparent, pre uh, what we get to hear about now. And mm -hmm. so for me, I didn't even necessarily know what was going on. I didn't know what it meant for my father to transition. So I think that was the first sort of reaction I had. Um, and then from there, it got progressively worse in my mind because I had no idea uh, that my father ever felt this way. And you know, here I was in my uh, you know, late 20s, early 30s, uh, learning for the first time. So. How had you seen your father as a, as, as a son growing up what was your image of your father, and, and, and what did this news do to that? Yeah, um, my father was, and, and still is my hero, you know? And, and I think that's what made it so tough as an adult. Um, so we talk a lot about baseball. So season tickets, playing ball in the front yard. We like the Mets, which you all understand. You're from Cleveland, so you have the Indians. Um, but uh, yeah, and so I think so much of it was centered around uh, just our time together playing baseball, watching baseball, that kind of thing. Uh, and then a lot of the reason, most of the reason I went into ministry was because my father was my hero and my father was a pastor. I wanted to be a pastor just like my dad. Uh, and so I, I taught fifth grade for a little while, uh, did that for seven years, uh, but knew that at some point I was going to transition into ministry. Yeah. Um, and, what ha and so did you find yourself wanting to explode those ideas of who your father is and was at that point? What, what did, you must have questioned quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> the question quite a lot is an understatement. No, I, I think um, I, I, I wanted my dad to be my dad. I didn't want my dad to transition. Uh, I, I didn't know uh, what that would ever look or feel like, and I, I couldn't fathom it. And so uh, really what I did, first and foremost, is I decided that uh, 
my dad was was ill. Something must be wrong. Um, uh, you know, you know. Hey, you're 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 sick, or hey, uh, you need to get help, or whatever. And I'm, and what you're doing is it's just denial, right? It's it's the first stage of grief, and so just denying that um, that this is really happening. And I think I denied it for a good a good year, a good year after you told me. Um, and in that year, I'm also a part of a church, and it's a, a part of a church that. Paula is connected with as well, and so I'm keeping this secret from people that we both know, uh, knowing that if I come out with this secret uh, about Paula uh, transitioning, that she's going to lose her job, and then it's possible that I'm going to lose my job too. Because at this point, Paula, you had not publicly transitioned, publicly come out to your colleagues or anything like that. That's correct. So this is like living life From the living time I told the on children, it was one edge. year yeah. before I told the people at work. Yeah. So I, yeah, in, in that time, it was a time where I was like, well, I have a year to get my dad back. I think that's how I felt. Uh, yeah. But you didn't, when you say get your dad back, you didn't, what did you, what did you mean by that? Well, Paula just mentioned, you know, the upsetting of the family systems. This, this, yeah. this opened up Pandora's box, so to speak. And so uh, now all of, all of our, our, um, Every one of us had to uh, analyze, had to look deep within ourselves as to what our family looked like, felt like, the relationships within our family, and mm. this upset all of that, right? Yeah. And so in upsetting all of it, it was like, I want things to go back to the way they were. Um, let's not upset this. Um, my parents have a beautiful home in Colorado. I like going there, and I like seeing both of them together there, and my kids like seeing both of them together, so let's keep doing that and pretending that this is all okay. And, uh, and again, yeah, denying what was real or what was true. Paula, had you, what had you, how had you anticipated your conversation with Jonathan going, and to what extent did that fulfill your expectations? I don't think there's any way a transgender person knows just how devastating it's going to be to their family when they come out, because we are, in fact, gendered systems. A family system is a gendered system, and so that's the kind of information that does explode the family narrative. And I was not prepared for how difficult it was going to be for my two girls, for Jonathan uh, or for Kathy. I think I knew what I was going to hear from the uh, evangelical world, the fundamentalist world. I knew what I would hear from my New York friends. Uh, but I don't think I was prepared for how difficult it was going to be for the family. So it must have been a very difficult year. Oh, it was least. awful. Was there it a lot of shouting? Really, it was awful. No, we're not a shouting family. Um, Jonathan pretty much disappeared. The girls were really close at that point because I think they feared for me. And then after Jonathan kind of returned, uh, the girls kind of took their leave for a while. They needed to just, you know, figure out what exactly was going on. You know, mm -hmm. my, our, my middle daughter, we adopted from Calcutta, India when she was two months of age, and she's a school administrator in Colorado. And, you know, some of the conversations with her were like, Really, this was the family into which I was adopted. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, already I'm a brown child in a white world. You guys didn't get that. And so now I gotta deal with this too, you know? So I think all of them at some point were quite appropriately angry. Mm -hmm. But my view is you're the parent, you're the one who's been around longer. So always, as long as you have your mental facilities, you always should be the one allowing them to determine what that relationship is because you're the one who has or should have more wisdom. So I wasn't going to tell them they should behave a particular way. I don't tell them now. 
they should behave a particular way. They call me dad, and I like that, but if they decided just to call me Paula, which they generally do in public except occasionally, <laughs> um, then, you know, that's, that's fine as well. They're the ones who get to decide. Uh, not all parents feel that way about their own children. Well, let me talk to those parents. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's been years of therapy that has brought you to that, to that place for, for all of us. I mean, like, yeah, you know, yeah. three times a week, four times a week. <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes. Yeah, morning, it afternoon, <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes. Jonathan, during, your, um, during the, the time where Paula says you disappeared, you're yeah. um, uh, wandering in the wilderness, um, what was going on? I jumped into church. I jumped into church work, and this evangelical community plays such a, a huge role in our story um, because I knew uh, that eventually when Paula would come out that she would lose her job. And so I think in my anger and my denial, I, I clung to that, to that uh, evangelical community. I didn't say anything, didn't tell them anything, but that became my tribe. Uh, whereas before, I would say my dad was, was the one I went to to do everything. So when I look back now, I have a lot of regret around that. Um, it feels, it feels like I was, uh, even though I didn't think it at the time, I was intentionally angry and I think passive-aggressively trying to hurt my father uh, by doing that. And uh, that's something I'll always regret for sure. But in the meantime, I, you know, as cliche as it sounds, uh, I, I drank way too much, uh, didn't want to get out of bed, um, feeling like I lost my hero, feeling like I lost the, the, the person I cared about most in life. Uh, so. This church that I had was going wonderfully, and, and I would be upstairs in the green room before I had to come down and preach, and I would cry for a half hour, uh, thinking about how I lost my dad, and then I'd, you know, 10 till 10 when church started, I'd come down and put on a happy face and smile and pretend everything was okay and preach, and then I would go home and sleep for four hours. And so uh, my wife at the time, uh, who's still my wife, not my wife at the time, but at the time. <laughs> at the time, my wife. At the time, my wife. Uh, <laughs> You know, every day it was like, well, where are you? You know, are you here? Are you present? Mm -hmm. And every day I'd say, no, I'm not. I'm not present. This is, this is uh, devastating. Um, yeah, I, I write it in the book, but after years of my own therapy, I think what I figured out is that um, God was never God. So the, the big, infinite, and unimaginable God of whatever is over here, whatever we want to call it, it was always my father. And so because it was always my father, it was like I was losing my God. And, uh, and that took a long time for me to, to recognize and realize. Wow. Oh, there's, a, a few, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. First, I want to point out that you might consider going easy on yourself and forgiving your former self. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's repentance, right? Thank you. Thanks. Uh, repentance is an ugly word. The, the evangelicals have ruined it. But it means, uh, it means a transformation of mind. Uh -huh. And so I think when I talk about it, there was a repentance. There was a transformation of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you've, Paula, Paula Stone-Williams, you've, you've heard your son's side of the journey innumerable times, I'm sure, at this point. Um, and you lived it with him as well. Um, but I would imagine that when he speaks of the, the pain that he went through, um, particularly during that year, um, it's got to be equally painful for you to hear. No, I actually enjoy inflicting pain upon others. <laughs> it's, uh, that's why I'm in therapy so often. It's not about being trans. It's always hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always hard um, because the family system has changed, and I don't think any of us would say it is better 
I think it's stronger, it's different, it's good. More authentic? Absolutely. Well, certainly more so authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's, it's hard. You know, we did a podcast together, what, two weeks ago? Or? Yeah, yeah. And it, um, I just, I cried um, during it. I think I did the one before that, too. And maybe the one before that. You've cried at a few of the podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, that's just hard. And it's hard hearing the pain you've caused your family. And like I said, I'm still close to my former wife. And, you know, I was the social butterfly of the family. She was extremely private. So for her to create her own life now is, um, you know, I, I look at her and I feel so badly. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to um, God? You're both pastors. And um, you, Jonathan, had said that, um, that God had, wasn't God for you, it was your father. And I'm curious to know and to hear you both talk about your faith. Um, those of us who are not part of the evangelical church or, church or any church that would call itself evangelical, I think probably have a lot of assumptions about what evangelicals believe and don't believe about God, about whether or not it's okay to be transgender, about whether or not it's even okay to love somebody who's transgender, who's in your family. Um, and I wonder if you both could just discuss that a little bit. Well, we're, in a, we, we're both in what we would call post-evangelical churches. We're seeing a shift in Christianity, particularly right now, that we haven't seen the likes of in over the last 500 years. It's a shift in three areas. It's moving away from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from believing certain things in a particular way, which is very typical of the last 500 years, to living in a particular way to loving well. There's also a shift from God as the eternal threatener who can't wait to send everyone to hell to God as the ultimate suffering participant. And I think something even deeper and more mysterious than that. I personally think of God as the Big Bang. And I think the third shift, which thank God it's time, is the church moving away from creating itself for its own self-protection to the church creating itself for the common good. And of course, you still have many in that older world who tooth and nail are fighting against that with everything in them. That's part of why we have the polarization we have right now. But as we look at the emerging picture, that's definitely the one that's emerging. And that's the kind of church that we're a part of. Right. I think uh, to put it in a nutshell, we, I, I talk about a vertical Christianity often. And so I think for the narrative has been for so long, uh, we're, in, we're here on earth and uh, the goal is to get to heaven, or if it doesn't work out, you're going to go to hell. And that, that's it. And so believe the six or seven right things that are going to get you into heaven. Um, you know, be anti-LGBT, read the Bible a certain way, make sure you pray every day, be pro-life, or as I like to say, pro-birth. Um, be those things, and you'll be okay. You're certain that God's not going to get mad at you. Now do the other things, and God's going to get mad at you and send you down to hell. Now I simplified it, but that's basically what American evangelical Christianity has been for the past couple hundred years. Uh, that, that idea believe the right thing. So when Paula uh, came out, I remember we, we were sitting there one time and you said, I still can't believe that all my evangelical friends di ditched me. And I said, well, well, dad, you threatened their very, uh, you know, admission into heaven. Like for them to, for them to actually, you know, support you and, and affirm you means that they're now in danger of going to that hell. And but I thought I was worth it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I guess on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. And so I, our church, we say uh, we are a just and generous expression of God. And what we mean by that is that the God is, is God, the God that, uh, you know, that I believe in, I guess, today um, is the infinite, unimaginable God that, that uh, like you said, works for the common good of all, works for the common good of everyone. Um, and if that's the case, then how are we working for the common good of everyone? Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever, Paula, did you ever have a sort of curse God moment? Like a, oh, yeah, <laughs> with the words we can't use here. Uh -huh. A lot, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, I was furious. I was livid. The day I knew I had to transition was actually kind of a typical baby boomer experience. I was watching television. My favorite <laughs> show of all time, Lost. And there comes a point in the final season where the protagonist of the show realizes he's been called by the God figure to die. And I knew I had to transition. And I screamed and yelled at God, who the do you think you are to call me to this? I'm going to lose everything. Do you know what my family's going to go through? But I experienced it as this very powerful sense of call. And, you know, you reject a call at your own peril. Had you felt like you had been previously rejecting the call? And No, I think that, you know, that there was a previous point, in fact, I told him this when I was with him not long ago, uh, but Father Richard Rohr wrote, wrote a when book called... When you said called, him, I thought you were talking about God. Yeah, no. <laughs> funny. no God doesn't have a gender. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, he wrote a book called Falling Upward that talks about the two halves of life, and I said, that was my first sense of call to this, that maybe I, I had to do it, but no, it actually was... Those of you who were Lost fans, it's when Jack goes to the lighthouse and sees his childhood home. That was the point that I knew I had to do this power of pop culture to really I mean, bring you to this moment. You know, I think David Mandeloff <laughs> and Carlton Cuse, who were the showrunners there, should know this. They should. Yeah. They should. Yeah. Um, how has this, the, these last years and, and through this transition, Jonathan and, and Paula, changed your relationship to God, changed your faith, changed your understanding? I mean, Jonathan, when you, before this, the evangelical church you were launching was not going to be a open, inclusive, LGBT-affirming and welcoming sort of place? Yes and no. Uh, again, it goes, it goes back to white privilege, I think. Uh, there, there's a point in which uh, uh, I could affirm privately people who are LGBT-identifying, uh, um, but because I didn't want to give anything up, there was nothing for me to give up, I could quietly just believe that on my own and still have this church that, that fit the mold of the rest of American evangelicals, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think uh, privately I just always said, well, yeah, you know, maybe one day down the road when it's more acceptable, I'll go ahead and affirm that community, but it's just not going to happen right now um, because, I, you know, I don't have to give anything up when that's, when that's the deal. Uh, and so what happened with Paula uh, really after the first year when I sort of had my own epiphanies and came back to, to just uh, accepting Paula for who she was fully, holy, and everything in between, um, then there was a, a real sense of urgency. Like, we have to do this, and we have to do this now. And so, yeah, within the next couple months, we publicly became an LGBTQIA-affirming church and lost about half of our members and about $100,000 walked out the door with it. Um, and that was the best thing we've ever done. Yeah, yeah. Did it... Did it feel like it at the time? Yes. Really? <laughs> at the time, it felt that way, too. It, it, um, this woman, I, I met this woman in Florida at this church planting conference, and this woman in Florida said to me, I, I spoke... What's a church planting conference? Oh, it's a place where a bunch of, like... 
It's a, it's a place where people who want to start churches go. I was going to say some really negative things, and I'll, okay. I'll, I'll pull that all back. Uh, okay. pull, that, pull that all back. Um, and so I'm at this conference, and there's 3,000 people there, and I speak at one of these workshops where I'm talking to people about how to create uh, a, a wonderful church community. Uh, and a woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, Pastor, um, the only way you're ever going to create a wonderful church community is when you are willing to give something up. And right now I don't see you willing to give anything up. Whoa. And so I didn't know what that meant, you know? And three years later, our church is transitioning and people walk out the door. And that was the first time I felt like I became a pastor when I gave that up. Yeah. If you take a look at the two most common areas of social concern that evangelicals, which is a very strongly male-led world, um, note the two areas where they have their greatest concern, LGBTQ issues mm -hmm. and abortion, um, those white male leaders, 95% of whom are straight, they don't give up anything to take a stand on both of those issues. There is no loss of any kind for them to do that. Mm -hmm. If you take a look throughout the history of virtually all religion, which usually is patriarchal, you'll find that those in power virtually never create uh, enemies that must be driven from the camp that would cost them anything to drive from the camp. Mm -hmm. Only will increase their power. We're going to open it up to questions from the audience in just a second, but both of you have just now spoken really directly to the issue of white male privilege. And, um, and I know this journey, um, in particular for you, Paula Stone-Williams, has uh, really opened your eyes to the white male privilege that you yourself had experienced and had sort of allowed the first half of your life, the first part of your life, to unfold the way it did. Yeah, I still, I brought my entitlement with me when mm -hmm. I transitioned, and I'm fully aware of that. And our church is very much focused on being an anti-racist church. And yet we're in a very white county, Boulder County, Colorado. And when it comes to how we deal with our uh, racial issues, I'm honest, I say I'm still a white guy. I'm still a powerful, powerful, successful white guy. I don't know anything when it comes to this issue. There's just so much for us to learn. I think the white folk have got to get our, our act together first, um, and then maybe we can take it from there. Listen, thank you. That's Reverend Dr. Paula Stone Williams, also with us as uh, her son, Pastor Jonathan Williams, and we're at the City Club today in a forum about um, faith, identity, gender, sexuality, the intersection of many of those things. Um, and as well as the trans experience. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via the radio broadcast or our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Orimilo Orisanya. May we have our first question, please. Hi, my name is can you hear me? Yes. I'm Suzanne Hamilton. I'm on the board of directors of the Human Rights Campaign. Thank you for your stories, both of you. I continue to be impressed by people willing to share their vulnerability. But what I also want to celebrate is this crowded room. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for being present. And if we all continue to be present in our truth every day, these issues will get better. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Do you have a question? Forever. Here we go. 
Thank you. Uh, Sharon Gorwargo from PFLI Cleveland. Thank you for, again for a wonderful story. Um, what we're seeing at our PFLI support group meetings very clearly in the last five to ten years is a huge influx of trans people and their families. And we're hearing many stories of young, young children um, telling their parents, I'm not a boy, I'm not a girl. And there's general resistance among a lot of communities to these very young children um, coming out with that. And it intrigued me, Paula, that you were very clear early. Do you have any comment on um, how to help these families with these young children? I am a psychotherapist. I do not treat transgender people because of something called countertransference. Uh, I refer them on. And when it's a child, I want it to be an expert in the field because there's so much we do not understand. What we do know is if a child has consistently and persistently from the age of three or four claimed to be the gender that is not on their birth certificate, we can be fairly confident that it's all right to treat that child medically when they are 16 years of age. On the other hand, if the presentation doesn't come till 10 or 12 or 13, there are a lot of other questions that need to be asked because this is a time period where all of us are differentiating, individuating, whatever language you want to use. And is it then, in that case, just a way to be as shocking as I possibly can to my family? Uh, that's something that I think it pretty much takes a professional to be able to, to take a look at that and understand what we have going on. You'll see that there are very bad statistics put out by the far right wing, saying that 80% of children who identify as uh, transgender do not identify that way by 18 years of age. That's actually a study done decades ago with not children who are self-identified as transgender, but children who are identified by their parents, their pediatricians, or their psychiatrist as not behaving in ways typical to the gender of which they were a part. Well, my goodness, 80% of those people are not in fact transgender. <laughs> So the studies that have been done that are, that are old are useless. The current studies that have been done, I think, are extremely important. Clearly, we're seeing a lot more young people become aware of the opportunity. When I was growing up, there were no books. There was nothing. I mean, I rushed home from high school to watch a Merv Griffin show once because he was going to have Christine Jorgensen on. And I was 16, just to get that little tiny bit of information. And now the info's out there, so children are able to get it early. I always say to parents, it's really important to be um, supportive of your child and to be supportive of your, of your child today, tomorrow, the next day. I was in, uh, Western, at Western Washington University uh, two days ago, and a parent came to me who said, my child wants to transition back. And I said, and? She said, so we're encouraging her to transition back. I said, right, yep. Because this is a time of experimentation for her. She's 13. Every 13-year-old wants to try on different possibilities. And I just love the way this particular parent was approaching it. Um, I, my question is, um, do, you, do both of you, or either of you, still struggle with the language to describe your reality? Because like I think of the, um, the, the, the title of your book, you know, She's My Dad, because our language has so many binary assumptions built into it, and you seem to be okay with that. When you talk about your past, when you refer to your dad when, when she was a man, do, do you find a, a problem with that as you struggle to articulate those realities? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I think um, 
I think what Paula said uh, when, when I first found out, she said, I've always been your dad, and, and, and I've always felt that way too. And, and when, people, uh, when people call her, uh, her my mom, there's this, um, this innate reaction within me, like, no, no, yeah. it's, it's not my, I have a mom. My mom is wonderful and incredible. This is my dad. I used to think um, that my dad never really existed, and then uh, I've come to this place where I'm like, no, my dad consciously existed, was consciously there to be my dad. And so I feel like I'm honoring her by calling her dad. Now in public, Paula, my parent, all the rest. Um, but yeah, that's taken some, some getting used to in terms of when to say dad and when not to say dad. There's a, there's a time, we were at a restaurant, my children were riding their scooters, and, uh, and one of my child's scooters like, went out and was, was headed towards the street, and so we're in the middle of this restaurant, I start yelling, dad, 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 grab the scooter. And people look around, it's my wife and it's Paula. And people are like, who's, who's dad? So that happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. I don't think any of us quite know what to do with Paul. Um, I still live in that big home that's in the foothills of the Rockies, and we have no pictures. I have no pictures of Paul uh, up in my house because I don't think any of us quite know what to do with that. We did not memorialize Paul's existence, which I think it might have been a good thing to do early on. Maybe it's too late now, maybe it's not. But I think that part has been difficult for us. I, I do what I'm doing right now. I refer to myself in the third person uh, with my male name. And I, I, integration is still an issue. I'm a person of significant interiority, so I know I'll, I, it's extremely important to me to integrate the two. I'm not there. Uh, I have a book proposal in right now with my book agent, and um, kind of proposing an entire chapter on that. And I said, that'll be the last chapter written, and that might have to wait for the second book. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you see your previous self as someone else? I mean, or is the third person just convenient, a convenient way to talk about your past? You know, I was on television for 18 years and a small overnight programming, a program that was in 70 different markets. I still can go to Orlando and see myself in the middle of the night. And I look and I say, well, I kind of like that guy. Or some shows it's like, oh my God, whoever put him on camera. Um, but it doesn't feel like me. Wow. Yeah. It's, and it's definitely not. It's definitely not Paul for, for me, um, for my children, for, for any of us. It's, it's, there's a, a striking difference for certain. Yeah. You are not the same person when you transition. The, the world treats you very differently. Mm -hmm. The loss of testosterone is massive. The arrival of estrogen creates major differences in how you function. One of the things I said to Jonathan early on was, Jonathan, I'm still the same person. And you said, no, no, you are fundamentally a completely and utterly different person from the one I know. That, yeah, yeah. First person to tell me that. And well, I no, it was when I was learning your name. Yep. I, so, so I said, well, what's your new name? And she said, Paula. And she goes, it's just one stinking letter. And I go, no, it's not. It, you are fundamentally, it changes everything that I've ever known in my entire life. And then I said, like, but I'm glad it's not like, you know, and I named a couple other names. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm Divinity from, can you hear me? Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm from the LGBT Center. I am the HIV prevention as well as the trans wellness program coordinator there. Um, what do you, Paula, feel that's more difficult for you um, being a minister, being transgendered, 
or still trying to connect with your family? Or do you just find yourselves just trying to still be inclusive so you just deal with certain things? How do you feel about that? I'm not sure specifically what your question is. I think that I don't think of myself, um, I don't think a lot about that. I live a pretty active life. I speak all over the world at this point, not on being transgender. I speak on gender equity. And my, very, my first TED Talk has had over two million views. And in that talk, I say there's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. I had an experience last night, uh, in fact, getting here uh, to the hotel from the airport that I can tell you with great certainty would never have happened to Paul, but did in fact happen to Paula. So I find more of my experience being connected to um, the subtle misogyny, the microaggressions that virtually all women are subject to every single day which then causes me to recognize what a tiny piece of that is compared to people of color. The most at-risk group in the United States of America for murder are trans women of color. The most at-risk group for suicide is actually transgender children whose parents are not supportive of mm -hmm. them. Most uh, translations of the Bible are interpreted as being non-affirming. So to both of you, how do you navigate the scriptures? Oh, we don't have time oh, for all is, of that. I, uh, <laughs> if you want to go grab a drink after this, like, I can, I, I, yeah. Uh, we, can, we can get some in, in the yeah. coffee mugs if you, need, if you need that first. I'll keep it really, really short, but this, this is not going to help because it's literally a couple hour long conversation. When you look at the arc of scripture, when you look throughout it, for me, this is my personal interpretation, when you look through the arc of scripture, we see over and over from the Old Testament through to the end of, of scripture, um, a God who is more and more progressive, more loving, more affirming, more inclusive in every aspect. And so what I generally ask people is, well, we say the Bible's living, is the Bible living? And people say, yeah, it's not static anymore. I say, well, if it's living, then is it possible that our God is becoming more progressive, more inclusive? Um, more affirming, just like we see in our scriptures, and people say it's possible, and I say that's why we're affirming as an LGBT community. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, there's a two-hour answer to that. <laughs> so that's yeah. not something that you hear a lot of other pastors saying. Uh, actually, you do. It's just the ones who right now have the microphone are pretty much the evangelical churches. Your 100 largest churches in the nation uh, 99 of them have a, a male as their lead pastor, and that's only because the 100th right now is without anyone in that position. 93 of them are white males. Um, to answer your question from my perspective, we have five um, originalist members of the Supreme Court who believe that our Supreme Court should be interpreted according to its meaning at the time it was written. We have four non-originalists who believe it's a living, breathing document that we need to understand with the changes in time. That's the difference you have going on between the evangelical fundamentalist world, and the mainline Protestant world, the more liberal Catholic world. We would see scripture in a non-originalist perspective. And those who are opposed to us say, I understand it according to its meaning at the time it was written, and I only hold to those positions, right. but they don't. Right. 
because Galileo was under house arrest for believing that the earth revolved around the sun. He was there because the church put him there. When's the last time you found a church that actually still believes the earth revolves around the sun, or that the earth is flat, or that slavery's all right, or that you can't get divorced and be remarried, or that you can't be a transracial family? Evangelicals have been non-originalists on these subjects for a long time. They just arbitrarily put the line where they're the least comfortable. And they're always the last to adopt. They're always, always. the last to, they, they go into the new, the new sort of progression of society kicking and screaming the entire way. Yeah. Is it hard to give up evangelicalism in that way? Not, not in the past, not since 2016. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, for me, it is, um, its structure is so American, so free market, yeah. and therefore able to make changes quickly. So I like the structure of it. What I often say to people about our church, and our church was actually started by Jonathan's church and two other churches, I say we are a, a mainline church, our theology is mainline, but our methodology is more evangelical. Uh, so we're swift and sure and can make changes quickly in our setting, which causes our churches to grow rapidly. I mean, my church started from scratch a year ago, and we already have about 150 people starting from absolutely nothing. Wow. Our next question comes from Twitter. Um, with all that has happened recently, do you see the Methodists in the U.S. leaving the United Methodist uh, denomination? I have acquaintances, acquaint, acquaintances who are United Methodist pastors who are already leaving right now. Can you, yeah. can you explain for, for folks who don't know exactly so, what's going uh, on? You, you're probably better at explaining it than I am. Okay, yeah, so the United Methodist Church, uh, they had a vote, uh, and they're unified together. There's a, a, for lack of a better term, a government that the United Methodist Church works underneath. And uh, a couple months ago had a vote whether or not to affirm the LGBTQIA community, and they voted against that. They said that no, the LGBTQIA community could not be affirmed. Uh, which led to split and division within the United Methodist Church, where some people are saying, good, that's what God intended, sort of the originalist interpretation of Scripture. And then you have a whole other section of the United Methodist Church that's going, no, we, this, is, this is wrong. We, we can't, in good conscience, um, be a part of this denomination any longer. And so what we're starting to see are the people on that left side uh, leaving the United Methodist Church. In fact, I got a phone call from somebody uh, three days ago, and they were like, hey, uh, we know what you went through. Um, we just left the United Methodist Church, and we don't know how to get health care. It's always come through the denom denomination. How do you do it? Uh, so I think it's changing, and I think, um, I think there's a tipping point. I, I think we'll see it happen not only with the UMC, but I think we'll see it happen in much of, uh, much of American evangelicalism really within the next 10 years, I think. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your father-son relationship has changed recently since the transition. I'm curious if um, you've become more collaborative. You mentioned, Paulo, that uh, Jonathan's church helped found your church. So I'm wondering how that relationship has evolved. Yeah, I've preached in his church. He's preached in my church. Uh, my people love his preaching a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's why I feel the same way. <laughs> well, that was such a great message by Paula three months ago. Yeah, it was. What about mine today? <laughs> uh, I think, I think uh, right now we're, we're obviously very intentionally collaborating because of all the stuff we're doing together because of the book um, and because of all those, all those reasons. Um, I think our relationship looks really different. Uh, I think because, of all the, because it has to. It has to, and I think we, we are constantly working, um, constantly working on what it looks like to be friends. To be friends, that's what we're working on. Uh, and I think we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, what he said. <laughs> okay, thanks. We'll stay okay. Yeah. Um, so I want to thank you for coming and sharing your story today. Um, it's very brave. It might not seem that way to you two, but I think um, it's very brave. I wanted to ask how, if you had any advice for someone who's trying to navigate their faith life and also live their authentic life, how to find a safe place to worship uh, and, and to kind of be that person in that space. I think, uh, I think the, the American church has, has lied to people. I think they've lied to people and, and has, have told them that the good news is that you are loved right up until this point where you need to change a few things. And if you don't change them, you're going to be in trouble. And I find that uh, in my church, uh, what we say every single week is, you've been lied to. Your shame, that, that shame that you feel, that's a lie. You are loved and you are affirmed and you were created exactly the way you are right now. No ifs, ends, or buts. That's it. And so it's such a simple message, but I think for those of us who have been hurt by the church um, for years or have been told that we're not enough or we're not made in the image of God, that simple message, um, you know, it needs to be heard over and over and over again. I used to be a teacher, and when I was a teacher, they would say, you hear, uh, it takes nine, nine positive affirmations to get rid of the one negative. And for people who have grown up in the church and, and have identified as LGBTQIA, um, I can't imagine how many negative things they've heard. And so for us, it means we continue to, to talk positively about the fact that they are loved and made in the image of God, whatever God may be. The 2015 Pew Research Study indicates that 52% of the LGBTQ population in the, in the United States identifies with a specific religion. 48% identify as Christian. Most people don't realize that. And 52% of the Christian community is supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. It's just where the power lies, they're not. You take a look, for instance, even at evangelicalism, the 2008 study, 26% of evangelicals were supportive of marriage equality. 2015, it moved to 36%, but 51% of millennial evangelicals. So they know the direction it's going. All your megachurches will say, we welcome you. The question you need to ask them, because they pretty much all know who I am, because at some point I preached in three of the 10 largest churches in the United States, you just need to ask them, can Paula Williams preach here? And then you'll find out where their position really is. <laughs> of the 100 largest in the nation, all 100 are not LGBTQ affirming, with certainty. Oh, well, actually, there's one now in Kansas City. So that's a really good litmus test for the evangelical if you're, if you're shopping for an evangelical church, what about for mainline Protestant churches that may fall in different places, just to follow up on her question? Most mainline Protestant denominations will identify. A lot of them will call themselves open and affirming evangelical Lutheran church in America, which is not evangelical, go figure. Uh, they actually have a term called reconciling in Christ for their churches that are open and affirming. Uh, the Presbyterian Church of the USA has decided as a denomination uh, to be completely open and affirming, which is not to be confused uh, with the uh, American Pres with the PCA Presbyterian Church of America, or the Evangelical <laughs> Presbyterian Church. Yeah. One last thing I will say: um, Church Clarity, ChurchClarity.org. Uh, they're an organization that that looks at churches' policies and, and lets people know if they're definitively affirming uh, for the LGBTQIA community or not. Uh, and so their their tagline is "Clarity is reasonable," which it is. Yeah. It's ChurchClarity.org. We're both advisors for them. Super concrete and super helpful. 
Uh, we have another question from Twitter. How does the binary of tra traditional gender roles play in realization of transgender people? What does it mean to be a boy, girl, boy or girl? Excuse me. How does that dis distancing affect um, choice? There's a large spectrum of gender, and we all know that. And even with people who identify as transgender, there have been fMRI studies done, which aren't always accurate, but those studies, the largest of them, indicate that our brains kind of function halfway between male and female pre-hormonally. And if we take a look at that and extrapolate it out, there are so many variations but we are still today a gendered society. It's hard for most boomers to call someone who identifies as non-binary they as a singular because they're just kind of stuck on that fourth grade English class that said they is plural. Um, for the younger, it's very easy for them to do that. We see so much more acceptance of the gender non-binary among those who are younger than we do among Oh, let's say Gen X, and certainly the boomers of the builder generations. We have another question. Um, I recently just came out as trans male to my parents, and it's been kind of tough talking to them about it. My mom has been making a bit of effort, but she doesn't use my preferred pronouns. She'll just use like they and just human. Um, and my dad is not supportive. He like kind of presses it on me that I'm a girl. What would be some a way to like maybe talk to them about it or something to do to help them realize this is who I am? If they're willing to, an incredible resource for them and probably the best in the country is PFLAG because PFLAG is designed, it began as parents and families of lesbians and gays. Um, I want to give you one of my cards, please. Let me give you one of my cards before uh, you go because I'd like to, to specifically, maybe we can communicate about some resources that exist here in the Cleveland area for you uh, because there are a lot of good resources. The problem is if your parents are not open or interested in being communicated with, uh, then there's not a whole lot you can do there. I want to applaud you for being really brave. Yeah. Is there, to follow up on that question though, is there specific language? There are lots of people listening to this on the radio right now who will come across this in the podcast and on YouTube. Is there language that a young person can use when they're searching for the words, language that maybe you wish you had when you were your younger self? You know, I'm preferring what's emerging, and of course this is all so dynamic right now, um, but a lot of us at anywhere on the spectrum or, you know, gender identity and sexual identity are two different things. Sexual identity is who you, you want to go to bed with. Gender identity is who you want to go to bed as. Uh, and on the entire spectrum, uh, I think a lot of us are just using, preferring the term queer right now, which if you're a baby boomer is crazy that my years growing up in Akron, that was a pejorative term. And now it's used by the population itself as a positive term. Okay, is there, are we wrapping? And well, I want to thank both of you so much for being with us today, for sharing your journey, your stories, um, your courage, and for, and, for, and for giving so much courage and inspiration to so many of us. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
today at the City Club, we've been participating in a forum with Pastor Jonathan Williams and the Reverend Dr. Paula Stone Williams. Our forum today is part of our Authors in Conversation series because we have an author on the stage, supported in part by residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We thank all of you for joining us. The sale of Pastor Williams' book, the younger Pastor Williams' book, She's My Dad, A Father's Transition and a Son's Redemption, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of our forum today, ladies. Uh, ladies, gentlemen, friends, all of you, thank you for being a part of this today. Thank you, Pastor Williams and Paula Stone-Williams. Thank you, everybody. Our forum is adjourned. Thank you. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.